You're listening to I'dRatherBeWriting.com, and today I'm interviewing Donna Spencer. She is the author of A Practical Guide to Information Architecture, as well as two other books, I believe, one on card sorting and one on web copywriting. Uh, but the one we're talking about today is is about information architecture. And uh, Donna is located in Australia. She's a super experienced person in this field, so I'm excited about the opportunity I have to talk with her. Uh, Donna, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Oh, I've been doing um, this sort of work for about, I think, about 10 years now, which makes me feel like a bit of an oldie. Uh, I live in Canberra um, in Australia, which means I do a lot of government work. Uh, so the types of... Um, Work I end up doing a big, messy, um, you know, nasty, out of control sites. Uh, I also, you know, do big, messy business applications. I've just finished working with a university. I always am working on these hard problems of, um, uh, of you know, with people who really need uh, uh, their, their sites tidied up. Um, and, you know, as part of doing that for a long time, I've been teaching it for a long time as well. Uh, so, and the, the neat thing about teaching uh, information architecture as well as actually doing it is it makes me think about how things actually really work deeply, um, more than just sort of plodding through through doing work. Uh, so I love that bit and, that's, uh, and I love writing the book. Well, I, I really enjoy this book, actually. Um, now, my background is a little different because I'm in the technical writing tech com type field, right? Mm -hmm. But I think that everything applies like 100% in this book. So, uh, but before we get into some of these details, can you give us kind of a definition of information architecture, especially since there's a lot of very similar disciplines. You've got user experience, mm -hmm. content strategy, information design, and the kind of fuzzy. So, so how do you define the IA part? I, I usually think about the IA part as the, um, you know, as, as the, the, the organizing part, the part where you uh, do the figuring out of where, what things are going to go together and how people are going to get to them. Now, you know, that, that, that then crosses over with a lot of other things in a project. In order to do that, you need to have set your goals. So you need to have done some business strategy work there. You need to have done some user research to understand the people you, you're designing for. So there's, you know, that user research experience, usability piece. Um, there's, you need to understand the content that you're working with really, really well. You can't do information architecture without understanding content. So there's some content analysis um, parts there. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, 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 you might come up with something amazing that really works uh, well for the users and that people can just find what they need. But there's no point if you have no strategy to look after it in the long term and to, and to you know, make content refindable and make sure that it stays up to date. So it fits in with, you know, content strategy there as well. Um, so I, I don't tend to worry too much about who does what or what things are called. All I care about is that the person who is doing the piece that involves figuring out how people are going to find these things um, understands people and understands content and can do it well. So one of the passages that caught my attention uh, when you're talking about who does information architecture mm -hmm. Uh, you mentioned that writers are a natural fit for IA work. Good writers will naturally be focused on the user and are accustomed to organizing large amounts of content. Uh, do you want to expand on that? Um, I, I, one of the, uh, if I had been a writer for a long, long, long time, and then all of these you know, new folks came in going, oh my God, we invented this new thing called information architecture, I'd be going, duh, I've been doing that forever. 
Because what does a writer do but, you know, think of what people need to achieve, what their tasks might be, what they might have trouble with, um, what might be in their heads when, you know, a new feature comes out. You know, so think about the users and uh, put content together in a way that helps them. It's it's totally information architecture. I mean, you know, putting it on the web then involves some navigation design as well. But, like, that is just information architecture. So I know lots of people who have transitioned from um, tech writing into IA, and it's a really natural transition. The other uh, the other thing about them as a like as a uh, a group of people is that they're usually quite detail focused, um, and you need to be you need to have like a real uh, ability to understand detail to do information architecture well. And most writers are exactly that. You have to understand something really well in order to communicate it. So it's it's totally uh, a, a perfect fit. Yeah, and especially for the tech writer who has maybe hundreds of, of help topics, mm. uh, he or she's faced with the challenge of trying to organize them and group them in a way that people can find. It seems yeah. like, you know, I, I've just been baffled by the fact that more tech writers aren't kind of into IA and really fascinated and reading about it and, and, and don't kind of consider themselves part of IA. Uh, well, I've met tons who are. Like at conferences and places like that, I've met tons of people who have either been doing tech writing in the past or still are doing it and go, yeah, this is a natural, this is a natural way for me to learn about the thing that I'm already doing. That's I've, cool. I've met that's, lots. That's good to know. That's mm. good to know. Um, so when I first started reading this book, I hit the, the section on understanding people, which is mm-hmm. part two, right? After you get past the introductory material. Yeah, probably. And, and here uh, you say that you begin each project with user research, right? Mm-hmm. And you say that if you don't understand the user, you're going to assume all kinds of possibly incorrect things. Mm. And this is actually one of the parts that kind of dis- is in a uh, unfortunate way. Many tech writers don't do the user yeah. research before we begin documenting a product and so forth. Mm. Um, how how long does your kind of user research phase last? And, and just tell me a little bit about uh, your approach to it. I, it really uh, very much depends on the project and the client and the situation that I'm in. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, that's a, a vague answer. But, you know, lots of projects uh, don't have budget or put a lot of time into doing user research phase. And lots, you know, put, put quite a lot of time in. Um, look, when I do user research for something, like, so, you know, as an example, I've been working on a university site for the last six months or so. Uh, and um, the place where I started was looking at all the things that we knew about people already. So we already knew something about um, their, you know, maybe what they're already using on the website. Uh, There's people in call centres and contact centres and help desks who are already in contact with them. There might be sales staff who are out chatting to them. These people already know a tonne of good things about 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 users um, and, and it's a good way of to, by talking to those people and looking at the existing materials you know I went I plowed through a couple of months worth of emails Here, you know, here's an email guess what I need such and such <laughs> they're telling you exactly what they want and what they're having trouble with um, they're the, a perfect source of research um, so I'll usually start with that sort of thing uh, to, to learn what I know and learn what, what's around and then see if there are gaps um, to, uh, to, to, to fill by, by, by direct research. The thing that should happen for tech writers is that 
you know, in an ideal world, and, and, and most projects are completely not going to be ideal, but in an ideal world, the product, product that they're writing for will have had some user research. So they should be able to go back and look at and look at that research or you know if it's a if it's a well-designed product based on what people need um there should be a bunch of material already about you know about those users so it uh it's for for a tech writing piece of work you shouldn't need to go redo research um though i guess i'm guessing you certainly should be listening for uh problems that come up um (sighs) Uh, and you know, keeping an ear out for for things that people are asking, you know, over time to make sure that that's covered off well. Now, one of the things that you're looking for in your terminology, right, mm-hmm. is you are trying to uh, you're trying to get the terms that the users are are using and their language mm-hmm. and their vocabulary. Um, but you also mentioned that there could be a danger in maybe going with some of these terms that the users use if those terms aren't the correct or official ones. Yeah, yeah, there is a danger. There's, there's, and there's dangers on lots of levels. There's danger that um, the thing you put out will look not credible at all because you've used wrong terminology. You know, could you imagine putting out a, um, I don't know, a legal or medical or scientific site that used really sloppy language uh, because the people who use it don't know much about the topic? You just can't do that. It just, it just would look or, or look look wrong, but. Um, when people are approaching, you know, something with a question in mind, they're going to use their, their own language. Um, and so you need to be able to match the two things up. And it's a really, it's a, ju- it's just a fine balance of, of, um, of, of doing the two. Uh, and, and it's a, and, and that, and that's a hard piece of work and there's no real answers on how to do it. Though one of my favorite sites and it's in the book, um, is, is called Yoga Journal. And when you do yoga, teachers switch between English terms and Sanskrit terms and they just flip between them and they pretty much say whichever one's easiest. So Yoga Journal has a side-by-side listing of the English term and the Sanskrit term just on the page. And it's like, this is a perfect example of uh, term matching to, to, for the people who know Bakasana or the people who know Kropos. Uh, but, you know, doing it in your IA and getting it into your content... Um, you know, it just just can be hard. Yeah, yeah, and and this leads up to this other point that you make about search and and mm-hmm. known items, right? And you say that um, you know, if people know an item, a search mm. works well, but a lot of times they don't know the terms that are the terms that would help them locate that item. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, sometimes and, and you you will have heard this as well. People say, oh, why do we need this information architecture stuff? We can just put search on. Or we'll just add, like, you know, Google. And, and, and people are coming in from Google anyway, so we don't actually need to worry too much about what we're doing here. Well, that does only address people who know what to call things and know what they're after. It doesn't address any situation where um, where you're trying to learn something and don't really quite know what to call it. Uh, but you're building up knowledge over time and you're poking around and looking at things and absorbing and, uh, uh, and, 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 you know, and reading and, you know, building up, uh, it doesn't, search will never help with people get started on that. That's where good navigation really works. They can go, ah, right, here's something that seems interesting to me. Or look, there's some other things that might be interesting to me. I didn't know that I would be interested in those and look what they're called. Wow. So we need all of all, all approaches um, 
to help people, you know, according to the different types of tasks they're doing and according to the different mindset they come in with. And you say that people kind of do a combination of both searching and browsing. Is that correct? Well, I say that people do the behavior that best suits the task that they need to do. So if they're looking up a dictionary definition or finding out the price of a book that they already know the title of or finding out um, who the actor is in this movie that we're watching right now, which is the thing that happens in my house all the time. Who's that? Oh, I'll go and look it up. Um, you know, they're, they're known item searches. So people will often search or browse an A to Z. It's a really easy way to do it because you've got a term in your head. If, on the other hand, the thing that you're doing is, um, you know, trying to buy a, I don't know, a new car and you're looking around and comparing and learning about the different benefits of both or different types and you want to, you know, be able to compare them side by side, that's not a direct known item task. You need to be able to help people get to the cars that suit them and then you might need to be able to show them side by side on the screen so they've got this comparative thing happening. Um, and if they're really just don't know where to start. Like I was trying to use Illustrator yesterday to do something and I'm like, I don't know how to do this. I don't know what to type into the help, but I went and looked at some videos that got me over the line of the thing that I didn't even know what to call. So depending on the type of thing that people need to do, they'll do different, you know, different, uh, different behaviors for the information. Um, uh, so it's not necessarily a individual will do different things, but it really depends on the task they do. Yeah, and I think people get biased towards that kind of myth that, oh, I'll just search and find it because mm. because Google just kind of uh, leans them towards that way. And yeah. f for that sort of search pattern that they use uh, it, or search behavior they use, it seems to work for them and then they apply it to everything. And Yeah. And look, as you know, we the habits that we build are built on our previous experiences. So all the time that we have good experiences using Google or something like Google, um, We'll, we'll, we'll keep going back to it and trying again. And, you know, this Illustrator problem I had yesterday that I can't even remember what it was, I still tried by typing, you know, words into a box um, to, to start with, but I just wasn't getting me anywhere. So the more we, the more we do that and have success with it, the more we'll keep trying it. Um, and even if it gets us somewhere where we can then start poking around and finding what we need to do, you know, it's still a good, it's still a fine way to start. So let's say that you're uh, trying to classify a bunch of topics based on task and mm -hmm. you start finding that, well, you do this one task, it's related to, I don't know, an illustrator gradients or something, but, mm. but uh, the task could also be related to, to line drawing and shapes and other things. And you start realizing that, hey, these tasks, they don't clearly fit into different uh, folders or categories. Mm. What, do you, what do you do then when, when just things are fuzzy and they overlap with other topics? Well, that's, uh, that's exactly the nature of categories, is that they're fuzzy and overlap. Uh, and, um, I mean, there's different, you know, what you'll actually do depends on um, how much things are overlapping and, you know, what your categories are, are like. If you've, if you've, for example, come up with a bunch of categories and they're really fuzzy and you, and you keep thinking, well, this, you know, this, this uh, topic could go in that one and that one and that one, and this topic could go in that one and that one and another one, and, and, and you're finding that they're overlapping so much then you've probably not got your categories right it's a fairly easy way of, of going actually these aren't separate enough and maybe you need a different approach entirely but it might just be that most of the tasks fit fairly well or most of the topics fit fairly well in the categories you've come up with and a couple uh, overlap 
and you know depending on what you're what you what you're working with whether you're working whether you're designing navigation or um or you know indexing or something like that you can you can make sure that things are available from more than one place uh and that's you know that's an easy way to make sure that um if people are going to be thinking about it in two different ways they can still find it in this e- 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 each way but if there's lots of overlap then usually your categorization scheme is probably not quite right it's like one of those university ones where you know you end up with current students future students and staff but then there's all the stuff that um everybody needs you go actually those three categories aren't perfect for everything yeah yeah and you talk about these alternative classification schemes or, or you know organizing things in in a different way than just by topic uh mm-hmm. you talked about um by geography or by time or by audience uh, yeah. what what are the what are some of the difficulties of organizing by audience you just brought up the student example oh um, audience is um sorry I, I just talked over you then no that was it Okay. Um, audience is really, really, really hard. And the interesting thing about audience, and for me doing, you know, website work more than um, writing work, is that the clients always go, well, you know, we've got this, this and these, these segments, like for current students, future students, staff. Um, we'll just all, we, we, you know, we'll organise it so uh, according to those, those audiences. Um, and there's a couple of things you have to do to make audience schemes work really well. So firstly... They need to be different enough that people can look at them and go, oh, yeah, okay, I fit somewhere. Um, so often, uh, you know, on, on product sites, there'll be, uh, I think I've got this example in the book, there'll be small business, or home businesses, small businesses, medium to large, that sort of thing. And I just go, I have a small home-based business, so I belong in both of those categories. And what's the difference between small and large anyway? Where does, like... Where does that fall? So I look at those sort of things, even in that simple example, and go, ah, uh, don't fit. And if, if a lot of your users are doing that, then you failed because I don't know where they fit, which means they're, they're going to need to check more than one category. Um, uh, the other thing that you need to make uh, an audience scheme work really well is that when you come up with the audiences and they're nice and reasonably clear without too much overlap, the content needs to allocate across them. Um, and, 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 you know, unlike the university example I just mentioned, where you, you go, oh, look, there's a campus map and the cafes on campus and the sports club that actually apply to all of those. If you find that when, you, when you're allocating content to audiences, you're getting a lot of um, content that would apply to more than one, then audience scheme probably isn't the right way. Um, and what I usually end up doing um, is organising the content around topics so sort of natural subject and topic groupings. And then I make these things that I call entry points by audience. So um, it might, you know, for a website, it might be a page or something that says, here's the current students page with links to bits all over the place, but it's not actually organized according to the audience. Um, and that's a nice way of still helping people who belong to an audience group, but not having to rigorously organize it that way. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, and I, I like this idea of doing multiple uh, different entry points, like you mentioned in in the book. I I think that that that's a really great idea. Now it really just works well. Um, it gives you lots of flexibility to like all the problems you come up with, and you go, I don't know whether to do like this or this, and then these people don't know very much, and those people know a lot, and they only do these tasks, and it gives you lots of flexibility to help people get to what they need 
without having to embed all, all that complexity in, in your structure. So let's think back to your Illustrator problem, right? You've mm-hmm. got a question about Illustrator. You're not sure where to go. You open up the help and you see that uh, it's got a huge, like hundreds of folders and topics on the left. You don't know how to find it. The search doesn't find it. What would you recommend to the, uh, to, I don't know, the people who create that help file to make it more findable? Oh, it's really hard because you have to know all the stuff that I don't know in my head. <laughs> it's more about knowing what I don't know. And that, you know, for, across a big audience, if, for an example like that, is um, is hard. You know, if it's if it's been organized into good topics, eventually... I'll poke around enough that I go, oh, cool, this is the bit that I need. And then as long as there's good links to other things, to, to sensible related articles, I'll usually find it. Um, uh, but it's, uh, you know, and, and I was sort of being a bit silly there saying it's about all the things I don't know, but that's actually a fairly important point. Um, if, it, if all the help assumes that I know the terminology and I know Illustrator already and I know how to do things, and you sometimes read things and they're written as if you already know it. It's really hard to find what you need when you don't know it. Yeah, yeah. And, and there are lots of other sort of classification things that, that sometimes people do. They'll put, like Twitter, I think, does this. They'll put, like, beginner-level topics, mm. advanced topics, and, like, it's broken topics. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and, and even things like getting started, like having a, a, a small section of getting started where you can go, okay, I really don't know anything or I'm, I'm really uh, light on this part. Let me just poke around and have a quick look at things. Okay, now I'm feeling a bit better and I know it's there when I need it uh, more. Or actually, God, don't, don't talk down to me. I know all that and I really need to know the nitty-gritty details of, of you know, how a thing works. Yeah, it- even browsing sites like Hulu, they they have these alternative organizations too, mm-hmm. where they show most popular content or mm. more. And and I really like that because I think, oh, if other people liked it, I must like it too. And it seems like with help, you could do something similar with either yeah. most popular, or most accessed, or most common support topics or things like yep. that. Yeah, easily. And with help, that makes sense as well because there will be things that are most commonly accessed that are common questions that people have and putting them in front of their face means that, uh, you know, you'll knock off a really large proportion of people who are coming in for those same things and going, uh, I'm having trouble with, oh, look, there it is. The problem, I think, is that uh, so often when technical writers finish a help file and the application is released, they just assume they're done and they move on to other mm. things. And you mentioned... Yeah, well, the client assumes they're done. Yeah. Mm. And you, you mentioned this testing. Once you've got the, the information architecture built, you then test it actually before release and then after. But but mm. I really like the scenario scenario you put it together where you have like index cards with different scenarios um, and different topics and you ask people, you know, where would you look for that? Yeah, yeah. And that's a dead easy... Um it's a dead easy technique. You know, you write down some questions on one set of index cards and your topics or your hierarchy or whatever on another. And you basically just say, if you needed this, where would you look? And people point at the card. If you needed this, where would you look? And, you know, you might drill down a bit into, into a hierarchy or it might just be, you know, it might be an A to Z or something. Um, and within a couple of minutes, you, 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 you have really good feedback about whether the labeling works whether the categories make some sense. Um, it's a really good and easy way of just going, going okay, I'm on the right track. Um, 
and, and there are some online tools that'll do it as well. Um, there's in the last year, there's been a couple pop up that let you do the same thing um, and just shoot it out over over email to some people to have a look for some things and gives you you know gives you your results back straight away. They're, they're fantastic. I, I don't think there's any excuse not to do it. I think you mentioned uh, one of the card sorting tools was TreeJack. Yeah. Um, so so here's always been my hesitation with card sorting. I guess I've got this fear that mm-hmm. I have. Let's say I have a hundred topics and I find a user, and and uh, I want to get them to try to sort all these topics and so forth. But it seems like such a daunting thing to ask mm. them. You know, do you, do you set limits on how much card sorting you have people do or times or what? Um. Um, when I'm thinking about the number of cards I might include in a card sort, I think of it more in terms of the complexity of the content than an, a, an absolute number of cards. So I did I did two sorts recently for the university I've been working with. One was um, administrative topics like, you know, how do you enrol, how do you pay your fees, um, what's on at the sports and rec place, you know, or, or the administration end of the university. And for that, we had 100 cards done in physical space around a table. I had a separate one that was actually just study topics. So, you know, linguistics and law and medicine and physics, etc. And we actually had 200 of those, which looked like an enormous card deck, but the concepts were fairly easy. So people went through the 200, you know, study topics as fast as they did the hundred um, admin topics that just were were more complex that needed a bit more thought, so it, it and I've had a like a two hundred and fifty card grocery sort um, that people did easily because it's groceries they they get it they can put them in piles really easily um, and you know it's much simpler. The other thing I just want to mention related to that is we were just talking about online tools. Um, if for, for both of those, I would have pulled the number of cards down probably to about three quarters if I was doing it online because, uh, you know, in, in these card sorts, they could spread them out all over the table and move around and see where they'd put them. On Online, you, you're trying to do it on a screen and it's just harder to keep track um, and it, it does feel more daunting having more cards to deal with on, on, on a computer screen. So I always pull them down compared to what I would do face-to-face. And you mentioned that when you brainstorm navigation or brainstorm, you know, these, the, the IA, you mm-hmm. know, you don't like to use computer screens. You like to do it offline. Like why? Yeah. Did you say why? Yeah. <laughs> computer screens are fantastic for documenting what you've already figured it, figured out, but your brain is fantastic for figuring it out in the first place. Um, so I will do it on post-it notes on my desk or on a whiteboard, or I might even just sit in my chair and stare at the wall and do it in my head. But the moment you start working on the computer, you start documenting it, which means one, you might not explore possibilities, um, so fast, but you're also like, you start getting into the tools, whether it's Excel and lining up your, you know, lining up your columns and indenting things, or if you're doing it in a diagram, making sure that things are aligned well, and you spend more time fiddling with the tool than you do thinking. So you should do your thinking work first and your documentation work second. Um, though sometimes I, I must admit, I do occasionally just do it in Excel and do my thinking there because I can move things around and it's fairly plain and vanilla and I don't get into, you know, making things align and pretty. Um, especially when I'm doing something really big and I've got quite a lot to deal with. It's easier to do it in Excel than it is to um, 
write it out on sticky notes. Yeah, I, I think that's so true. I mean, I, even when I'm just brainstorming little diagrams or something, yeah, I do it on paper because the computer does hang you up with, with all the formatting and whatever you're doing. Yeah, it just lets you, like, you, it lets you get to start doing the easy work of, you know, of lining things up, making yeah. the font right, and not do the hard work of, um, of doing the thinking. I was listening to this podcast by Merlin Mann the other day. It was a fairly old one. He was talking about when he got a book deal and he spent the first couple of months um, <laughs> like getting binders to put his research in and, like, and, and, you know, getting tabs and getting all sorted out. of. And he did all of the easy work of getting organized and <laughs> none of the thinking work of writing the book. Yeah. That's so funny. That is funny. So uh, l- let's say you've, you've done some card sorting, you've done all this user research, and you've got a bunch of folders. How, mm-hmm. ma- how many is too many at the top level? You have 10 or 2 or what? Um, the right number is the right number for your content. Um, and it's, it, that's a complete non-answer. Um, fewer, the thing that happens when you, when you categorize and when you, when you put things into groups, let's say that you came up with 14 groups that sort of felt really good and they were, they were fairly natural. And maybe when you'd showed people to them in the, you know, in your little mini test, they sort of got them and the, and the, and the categories are good. And then somebody said, oh, you can't have 14. You've got to have five. And you go, oh, okay, well, I'll, I'll put some things together. The moment you put some things together, you, um, you're making like a, a, a larger category uh, at a higher level of concept and often at a more abstract piece of terminology. So by putting them together, you have to abstract one more layer. When you abstract one more, more layer, both on the concept and the terminology, you're less likely for people to make a connection with it than, you know, maybe those 14 awesome categories that you'd already come up with. Um, so you really should try to use, you know, the, 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 the categories that, f- that, that most naturally fit the content and the users. And if that means there's 14, it means when you, when you go to design or, you know, or in a big list of topics, it might be hundreds. When you design the way that people get to it, which is like your navigation, you design it around that. You don't go, oh, well, uh, I've only got five slots in my navigation bar, so that's all you can have. You go, actually, my navigation needs 14 categories, so let's do it in a way that it can fit 14. Of course, it may fit three. Three may be perfect, but um, it really has to fit the content and the users, not an arbitrary number. One of the other things that I really liked uh, in terms of an organization strategy is is these next links. And this was a this was a part of the book. It wasn't a huge part of the book, but it seems like it's really applicable to help topics mm-hmm. because users are, are constantly mm-hmm. kind of chasing the right topic and, and yep. they get closer and closer. Can you talk a little bit about uh, putting kind of the next steps sort of link uh, or that strategy? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I think I'm, I probably talked about it more, more as like related links. So when you've, you know, here's, here's a thing and you might be almost where you want to be, but here's some other content that is on the same topic or around the same, you know, level or even maybe just be other things that people who, you know, really liked this one um, um, used and therefore may be relevant. And they're really good for those situations where, you know, you're not just diving in to get an answer and leaving. You need to learn something. Um, so providing people with a way of getting 
closer to the thing that might help them or expanding their knowledge or even, you know, for a website, people might land in the middle of it on one page and go, this isn't quite right for me, but oh, look, that one is. So we need to be able to make sure that we link things together. And that might be um, in a real, really structural sense by marking articles with topics and audiences and things so that you can come up with a list of related links, you know, uh, automatically. Or it might be by putting hyperlinks in the content to things that you know that other people might be, um, uh, you know, relevant and related. And, and you mentioned that uh, rather than starting at the homepage, right, you you begin building your information architecture at like a content page. Mm-hmm. Um, this, it's only like, it's only a subtle thing, but I've seen my, I've seen myself do it and I've seen other people do it. Uh, and when you design like your navigation and page layouts from the homepage in, uh, the way it's just, it's, it's, it's weird. The way it ends up is, uh, it works really well for anybody who starts on the homepage and comes into the content. So, uh, like you might, um, you know, design a homepage with some categories and then, you know, a next level page with a bit of overview information and then leading down to some more detailed pages. And if people followed that path, they would understand where they were and what the context was and what it was about. But if they fall in from Google, uh, which is, you know, for, for a lot of sites that I work on, um, the proportion coming in from search, you know, uh, into the middle of a site might be, you know, as high as 80%. Um, so if you imagine the situation where you've, you've landed on a page of a site and it's a detailed content page and you need to navigate from there, well, you need to have your navigation structures ready to work from that point, not from the homepage. People may never go near the homepage. They may land in the middle, move around some related content, find some things and disappear and never see a homepage. And it's just that subtle difference between designing for that behavior and making sure your navigation structures work for it and designing for walking from the homepage in. Yeah, I think that just makes a lot of sense. I mean, especially now many people are trying to leverage help content for a product mm-hmm. online as like mm. a search engine result that's gonna bring people back to their product and so forth. So yeah. they'll definitely be coming in right in the middle of the story rather than like at the homepage. Right in the middle of the story, yeah, so absolutely. So what do you recommend for the actual homepage? You know, what kind of content goes there? I often just end up putting fluff there. I'm not really sure what uh, to put there. Um, again, it depends on the purpose of the homepage and the purpose of the site. Uh, sometimes, like some for some organizations, the homepage is their piece of branding. It's their wh- where they communicate who they are and what they do, and it might be where they're communicating what's going on via news. Um, it may be, may be communicating... Uh, like visually, you know, a lot about who they are. For some organisations, the homepage may be a uh, like a doorway into everything else. Um, and, and really its only purpose is to get you one step closer to, to, to where you want to be. And they're quite different um, situations. Now, I'm thinking that for something like help for a product, um, the, the homepage of the help, I'm not thinking of the product site, is, is really going to need to do a job of 
um, this is who we are and what we're all about, it really should be helping people to get straight in. So it might have tons of links. Like you said, it might ha you might include a set of, um, of most popular questions. You might include something that shows what people are talking about if there's a forum or, um, or some you know, discussions going on inside. It might include you know, links to the videos or something that people are using most often that are, that are, that are really key. It might just have a ton of links um, nicely laid out and nicely categorised just so people can get closer to where they need faster. But it should be, uh, if, it's, if you know that, that's where people are going to start. You know, make it make it really work well for them. Don't put fluff on there. Yeah. <laughs> well, Donna, you've got tons of great advice and insight. And, uh, you know, this book, I, f I think it's highly worthwhile for, you know, tech writers and people who are full-time IA. You also run a UX Australia conference. Is that right? Do you want to talk a little bit about that? I do. Um, I do run it. And yes, of course, I'll talk about it. Um, UX Australia is a once a year user experience conference. Um, this year, it'll be in Sydney on uh, the between the 23rd and the 26th of August. Um, and what we do is we have a day and a half of hands on workshops, and then two days of conference. Um, and uh, we get we're in the middle of calling for proposals now and I just know we're going to get a ton of really awesome content because we always do. Uh, our speakers are always fantastic uh, and it's all around a good conference. Um, I, I'm guessing that probably a lot of your audience are from the States and won't get over but we do make the materials available after after as well so we make the slides and the audio available and and they're available from last year and the year before as well on, on the on the site which is uxaustralia.com.au. Wow, so you record all your presentations and make them available for free? Yeah, of course. Wow, that's I don't awesome. See the, I don't see the point even as a speaker of talking, of, of putting all that effort into, you know, putting something together and only talking to 150 people. Um, uh, well, our conference is 300, but, you know, if we have two rooms, you might only have 150 people. Of course we're going to make the material available to people later on. People don't not turn up because the material's there. They still turn up to go to the conference and meet people and network and actually, you know, the whole vibe of a conference and learning while you're there. But we know we, we put the materials up later. Yeah, I think that's great. I, I just wish more conferences did that. I, I listened to a lot of the past ones from the IA Summit, which mm -hmm. I, I know you're presenting at that. You're giving like a full day workshop, I believe, on information architecture, right? Yeah, I'm doing I, the, bo the book evolved from workshops and I'm doing the full day workshop that um, the book evolved from. It's, uh, it's oh, I, I'll, I'll plug that, it's at the Information Architecture Summit. When's that? Uh, really soon, like I'm flying next week. Yeah. The workshops I on, I think, Thursday the 31st or Wednesday the 30th. No, Thursday the 31st in uh, Denver, Colorado. Yeah, that looks that looks like a cool conference as well. We actually it is a really good conference. Th yeah, there are some some well known technical writers in Australia, Tony Self and Sarah Maddox, and they're really visible and and super sharp people. So hopefully they'll mm. make it out to the UX Australia. Yeah, uh, I don't know either of them. Yeah, mm. well, uh, Donna, thanks for talking to me. So uh, listeners, if they want to buy the book, it's called A Practical Guide to Information Architecture, published and by. And they can get it electronically and in print as well so you can get it you can go oh my god i need something now and you can download it straight away and that's what i did i i, Good. I, I it was kind of an impulse buy actually you, mm -hmm. you, you made a last post on one of your sites i think you're shutting down one one of your 
blog site. Oh yeah, that's my um. I shut down my old blog. Yeah. Yeah, and but you you had a link to it, and I was like, oh, I saw it in my feed reader, and I'm like, I totally want to learn more about this topic. Oh, and, cool. And I and I just downloaded the book. So, but I like to print it out because then I I don't feel so bad marking it up with notes and yeah. other kind of questions and, and thoughts. And so anyway. Mm. All right, Donna. Well, thanks again. Now, if people want to find your website, uh, what's the URL? Uh, madmob.com.au. So madmob is M-A-A-D-M-O-B. So two A's. Otherwise, you know, if you Google Donna, Donna Spencer probably, uh, you'll find me pretty easily. All right. Well, thanks again for talking to me today. today Thank you Donna. for having me.